Hi and welcome to another great life impacting message from Bridge Evangelical Christian Church. For more great content and to learn more about our church, visit becc.church. Enjoy. Now the uh, historical narrative of the book of Haggai is commonly titled, which is commonly titled as the rebuilding of the temple, and its popularity in the pulpit really arises from a need for a church to be more focused and more committed to rebuilding the ministry or advancing a new project. I mean, most sermons you hear on this book, it's about that. It's about a, a church whose ministry has gone astray and it's about getting it back on track or it's about building a new project. If you want to do that, you come to a book like this and, and you can do it very easily. Um, Haggai's challenge to the Hebrew people of his time in some ways is an opportunity for the Haggai's of our day to challenge and to convict and to stir the people of God in the Christian church to focus less on their own panelled houses and more on the church. To give more to the Lord's work than they should to their own comforts and luxuries. And yet upon careful study, there is more to the book of Haggai than the challenge to rebuild a forgotten ministry and forsake one's own needs. In fact, the overarching theme of the book of Haggai is the sovereignty of God. Write that at the top of your page in your Bible. That is the overarching theme of the book of Haggai. God is sovereign. Throughout this book, God displays his glory, his might and his power, his affection and his ability to do his will, not their will, but to do his will in such a way that it stands to be of great encouragement to the church today, as I'm sure it did for the people of Haggai's time. If as we again come to the small book of Haggai, I trust that we will find treasure here. I trust that we will find more treasure here than in the largest banks in the world. I trust that despite its brevity, we will find in it much, much, much wealth for the Christian life. You know, one of the values that I've found in this book is the way it captures the historical context of the Hebrew people in the Old Testament and then foresees the future, the future culmination of the New Testament. That's what this small book does. It calls us back to creation and then moves us forward to the, the culmination of all things. In fact, a helpful way to understand this book is to understand how the people had arrived to the point of their failure to rebuild the temple. To understand this, we must understand their continual failure to remember the Lord their God. And I believe in an understanding this, we have more insight, not only into the nature of people, 
because we are all sinners fallen short of the glory of God, in a sense we are we are all failing. And so it's not just privy to Haggai's people, it's privy to all humanity. But we also get an insight into the way God deals with these people and how he deals with people in general. And we see that through his attributes as he accomplishes his will and his purposes for his glory, despite the failures of his people. Folks, that's got to be reassuring to us. That has got to be great encouragement to us that God is accomplishing His will and His purpose despite us. If He depended on us to accomplish His will and His purposes, what do you think might happen? So you get it, don't you? God doesn't need us to accomplish His will and His purposes. He can do it himself. And really that's what the book of Haggai, the overarching theme is. He is a sovereign God. See, Israel's history can be summed up, if you want to know about Israel and their history, it can be summed up with two words. Downward spiral. In other words, from the outset, they continued on a path of self-destruction from the time of Adam in the garden to the time prior to their capture and captivity in Babylon where we're at now. Oh no, we're not at there. We're after that actually in the return from uh, captivity. But if you follow their history, you see that it's just one downward spiral after another. They continued to do what was Right in their, in their own eyes. That's the overarching theme when, when we consider the people of Israel, God's chosen people. They continued to do what was right in their own eyes. Yes, there were glimpses of hope. There were glimpses of light, but that hope and light was always overshadowed by a great cloud of darkness. If you read the Old Testament, you would have seen that. So when the prophet Haggai confronts the people of his time, he uses the language that is reflective of their history when he says, these people say, let me get this right, there we go, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. You see, these people these people were, in a sense, doing what was right in their own eyes. And in their own eyes, they believed building their own kingdom was right. They believed that, that working on their own panelled houses was more important in their own eyes. Therefore, they had come to the conclusion that the time was wrong. They say that it's not yet time. They were basically competing against God in terms of knowing the times. They had assumed that the prophetical calendar had not turned the page to the correct date 
And they were suggesting that the 70 years which had been prophesied previously by the likes of Jeremiah and then attested to by the defeat of Babylon by the Persian Empire and then further evidence came on board when Cyrus decreed for the people to return back to the homeland and all of these should have been evidences that it was time For the people, there wasn't enough proof. Their understanding was that the actual time for rebuilding the, of the temple was still some time away. Therefore, they were in no hurry to cease work on their panelled houses. Now, I think of the parable found in chapter 25 of Matthew. And there Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins. We're waiting for the bridegroom, but they all fell asleep. However, when the shout went out as a warning that the bridegroom was coming, that he was on his way, five of the ten virgins, and Matthew calls them the foolish ones, the five foolish virgins who didn't have enough oil in their lamps and hadn't brought any spare all along, ask the five prudent virgins, the five wise virgins, to share some of their oil because they had extra oil. Might have been extra olive oil. Virgin oil. <laughs> However, the prudent virgins, they refused, citing that there would not be enough for them all. And then suggested that the foolish virgins go and purchase some oil from the dealers, which they did. And while they were gone, remember, the bridegroom appeared. And he received the five prudent virgins. And he welcomed them into the wedding feast. And it says that he closed the doors shut. Then, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, we read this. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut. And who shuts and no one opens. Says this. This is him in Matthew 25. He opened the door and he shut it. says that he opens doors no man can open and shuts doors that no man can shut. Once that door was shut, guess what? It was shut. And in Matthew 25, verse 11 to 12, records this. Later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, you do not know me. <laughs> oh, sorry, what does it say? He says, I do not know you. Jesus said, I don't know you. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, you don't know me. He says, I don't know you. And the door remained shut. And then Jesus added this warning in verse 13. 
and put it there. But if you look at verse 13 in your Bibles, it says, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Folks, that was the reality of the people of Haggai's time. They did not know the day, nor did they know the hour for the reconstruction of the temple, or worse, they had just ignored the signs. Now, we have many signs in our day pointing us to the return of Christ. How many people, do I say, are ignoring the signs today? Before Haggai's first message sought to correct the people's misunderstanding of the times by posing to the people a rhetorical question demanding a negative response. When he said, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? He demanded a negative response to this. Imagine being asked that question yourself. Imagine he was asking you. How would you respond? Being the highly spiritual type of people that we are, we would, I'm sure, respond the way Haggai expected. Amen? We would all say, no, 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 it's not time for us to dwell in our panelled houses while this house lies in ruins. How did the people of Haggai's day respond? The people eventually obeyed the Lord, and you can see that in the later verses. And according to verse 15 of chapter 1, though, it took the people 23 days from the date of Haggai's first delivered message before they effectively responded to that question in a positive way. And that they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. 23 days. Before there were possibly 23 days of consideration. That's why you read in there, don't you? The Lord says, consider your ways. He wanted them to spend some time in consideration. 23 days of consideration, 23 days of reflection, 23 days of mourning over their sin and their neglect. 23 days of confession. How long would it take us to respond if the Lord spoke to us like that? I hope it wouldn't take 23 days. It's a long time. What can happen in 23 days? However, what's interesting, following that challenging question by Haggai, and before the people actually obey, God does something very unusual. God shows his hand in an unusual but mighty way. Yes, the people responded positively, but it took the word of God preached by the messenger of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, for God to display his sovereign might and power that no man or any other created thing can stand in the way of. 
when it comes to his will and his purpose. And so Haggai begins verse 5 as we are confronted by the unusual work of God with this. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You know, it's no accident that Haggai employed the use of the term, or the title actually, the Lord of hosts. This title most commonly refers to God's sovereign ability to employ all the hosts of heaven and earth to accomplish his will and his purposes. It can refer to God's accomplishments in a military sense, like in an army fighting for the cause. Or it can refer to God's accomplishments in an environmental sense, and that he uses the environment and people to accomplish his will and his purposes. To put it quite simply, God will use the hosts of heaven and earth, whether they be angels, whether they be stars, whether they be the sun, whether they be the moon, nature, people, to accomplish his ends. Praise the Lord. first use of the term hosts is found in Genesis chapter 2 verse 1 where the, uh, we're following the creation account. We read this, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. So everything in heaven, everything on earth, that's the hosts. So you get it? Therefore hosts as it's used in Genesis refers to all Things contained in heaven and on earth, the angels, the stars, the moon, the sun, nature, people, everything. That's what that means. In heaven and on earth is what they call a merism. And it means, it's another way of saying everything. <laughs> Everywhere. So wherever the Everywhere is in God's economy, he, he employs everything to accomplish his will and his purposes. Therefore, host, as it's used here in Genesis, refers to all things contained in heaven and on earth, everything. The first use of the title Lord of hosts is found in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse uh, 3, where Elkanah uh, went and worshipped and sacrificed to the... Lord of hosts at Shiloh. And so we kind of just get this idea, well, that's where it's, the title's first used. We think, well, okay, well, it's only important from 1 Samuel upwards because it's not mentioned in any other place prior to that, right? However, as God fulfills his promise to give his children the promised land, guess what? We meet the captain of the Lord's armies the captain of the hosts. And, uh, and so as God fulfills his promise to give his children the promised land, Joshua meets a man who is the captain of the Lord's hosts. And the meeting's recorded in Joshua chapter 5, 13 to 15, and it goes like this. Now it came about 
when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? He said, No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the hosts of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Joshua did so. Some people have said, well, this, is, this is an angel. You know, he, this is the angel of the Lord. He's the captain of the Lord's host, the captain of the Lord's army. He's an angel. He's no angel. He is God himself in the flesh. This is Christ in the Old Testament. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And Joshua saw him and had a conversation with him. And the Lord turned to Joshua just like he did to Moses and said, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This can't be an angel, because the Hebrews were forbidden to worship anyone else but the Lord. And then following the scene, in Joshua 6, we have the account of how the captain of the host of the Lord delivered the great fortified city of Jericho into the hands of Joshua and the people. And there was another interesting battle found in Joshua 10, where the Lord delivered Adonai Zedek, who was the king of the Amorites, and the Lord of hosts delivered him into Joshua's hands. And the interesting, interesting thing about that battle is recorded in chapter 10, verses 12 to 14. And this is how this one goes. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in that day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said, in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon, in the valley of Eidolon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. And you go, wow, Joshua, is he that great and powerful that he made the sun and the moon stop? Is it not written in the book of Yasha, and the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day? There was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. The only day when the Lord listened to a voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. It was the Lord who stopped that sun. It was the Lord who kept that moon still. The Lord of hosts. And so as God accomplished his will to give the promised land to his people, even the sun and the moon were engaged in the Lord's battle. And so the Lord of hosts, in accomplishing his will and purpose, employed all the hosts of heaven and earth to do his bidding. Therefore, as Haggai pronounces those words, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, 
It should have pricked the ears and hearts of those people, just like it should for us. At least some of them, if not all, should have recalled the oral accounts of Yahweh when he fought for his people. In fact, the Lord urged them in chapter 2, verse 5 of Haggai to recall the exodus out of Egypt when he said, As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear, Haggai 2, verse 5. So the Lord wanted them to think back to remember the exodus and how God split open the sea because he can, because he is the Lord of hosts. And the Lord caused bread to fall down out of the sky so his people wouldn't go hungry. And the Lord caused their sandals to never wear out. He didn't want them to have sore feet as they walked in the hot desert. And they should have recalled that and remembered how great our God is. They should have recalled the great power and might of God when he delivered their ancestors out of bondage. And as they record those events, they should have been cut to the heart, just as we are. As we think about how Christ has delivered us out of the bondage of sin, that he who knew no sin became sin for us. How did he become sin for us? Because he took our sin and put it on him who knew no sin and delivered us out of bondage to sin. It should cut us to the heart. I hope it does. So as they record those events of how God brought them, their ancestors out of Egypt, should have brought to their minds just how great their God is. Nothing can stay his hand. Nothing can alter his will. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Folks, do you believe that? Do you believe that there is nothing in this entire universe that can stay the hand of God, that can affect his will and purpose? Because if you don't, that's not a mighty God. That's a very weak God. That's a God who is not all-powerful. That is a God who is not all-sovereign. That is a God who is a very weak God. And if he can't do his own will and purposes, with all his creation employed to do it, he is a weak God and he is not sovereign. He is not powerful. And praise the Lord, don't we, that he is who he says he is. He said, I am that I 
am. I am the existing one, the self-existing one. He doesn't depend on us for him to exist. Did you know that? We depend on him to exist. In fact, we depend on him for all things. And yet, dare I say, there are many in this world today who treat him like a vending machine. Pop a coin in and get something out of it. He is no vending machine. He is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. So Haggai presents God as the Lord of hosts. This title can be found five times in the book of Haggai chapter 1 and nine times in chapter 2. Chapter 1, it first appears in verse 2, right at the beginning. Bang. And then finally in verse 14, right at the end, one verse away from the very last verse. In a way, it frames the first chapter. It's as though Haggai's intention is to arouse the people's awareness of the presence of God in the dealings of his people. I like to use the the hamburger analogy, and uh, if you've heard it before, you'll know what I mean. Uh, so using that analogy of a hamburger, but in fact, this is a Big Mac. Imagine a Big Mac, you know. In fact, this is a triple Big Mac. It's got more than one, two buns. It's got more than three buns. It's quite, there's about five buns here. Uh, you'll see that. So using that analogy, the title, The Lord of Hosts, are the buns which hold the filling together. Verse 2 is the top bun. Then comes verse 5 is the next bun, and you've got filling in between. Verse 7 is the next bun with filling in between. Verse 9 is the next bun with filling in between. And then verse 14 is the, the last bun with filling in between. Without the buns, the filling... Is useless. <laughs> Imagine having a Big Mac without fillings. Didn't they try and create something like that? Yeah. <laughs> It'd just be a mess. It'd be a mess, folks. And so is God's word when we treat it like that. When we forget that he is sovereign. He is Lord. Without the buns, the filling inevitably ends up all over the place in one big mess. And that's true of Scripture. When the Lord is not viewed as the Apostle Paul viewed him in Colossians 1.17 when he said, He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Just like buns hold the filling together. So he holds all things together. We don't, we don't hold scripture like that. We don't hold the word of God like that. We end up, folks, with a theological mess. 
And therefore, it's not surprising how people end up with a man-centered gospel. It's because they have placed the emphasis of Scripture on the people of the Bible rather than the Lord of the Bible. They have made the people characters of the Bible the main characters of the Bible rather than the Lord. And therefore some will mistakenly exclude God as the main character. And instead of the scriptures being his story, they become their story or our story. Jesus, when defending his deity, accused the Jews of this very thing when he said in John chapter 5, verse 39, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think it's all about you. You think it's all about you. It is these that testify he said, about him. It's about him. And then on the road to Emmaus, following his resurrection, Jesus explained to the, the two disciples walking with him. One of them we know by name, the other we don't. And we read about this in Luke chapter 24, 27, when it says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets... That's the, the scriptures of the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been canonized then. We didn't have, you know, the full 66 books. And he's basically referring to the word of God that was about at that time. Beginning with Moses, first five books of the Bible, and with all the prophets, that's all the writings, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of scripture. Therefore, Haggai clearly understood that this is his story. So he employed the title Lord of Hosts not once, not twice, but 14, 14 times in the small book of Haggai. That's not including the number of times he refers to him as Lord, Yahweh, and God. Haggai's point is this is about him. This is about God. And we read in verses 6 and then 9 to 11. Haggai chapter 1. Remembering that this is the Lord of hosts at work. Haggai says this, You have sown much, harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so. Put them into a bag of holes. Verse 9, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, 
in lies and ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have poured for a drought on the land and the herds, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast, and on all their labors. How does the Lord of hosts respond to the temptation of his people to build their own homes? How does he respond to their lack of satisfaction in the things of God, thinking they can find it in, in their homes or in their own lives some other, some other way? How does God respond when his people have neglected him? He blows away everything. Everything they have trusted and everything they have sought satisfaction in rather than in him. As the sovereign God of all the hosts of heaven and earth, he employs the earth to cease bringing forth rain. That's what it says there in verse 10. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. He blows away everything as the sovereign God of all the hosts of heaven and he employs a drought so that nothing will grow. You know, this harkens back to the Mosaic Covenant, doesn't it? Where if the people kept covenant, they were blessed. However, if they broke covenant, they were cursed. And in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 14 to 16, the results of covenantal breaking were clearly stated as we read. But if you do not obey me, the Lord says, and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. The problem wasn't that they were rejecting his statutes or that they were abhorring his ordinances. The problem was that they weren't obeying him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. So the bigger issue is that they didn't love him the way they should have. He says, I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly. And your enemies will eat it up. So what the people of Haggai's day were experiencing, they should have been expecting if they belong to the Lord. And what they were experiencing was a curse, right? Yet, at the same time, it was a blessing. <laughs> this was a blessing. And often we view a divine curse as a bad thing, right? 
None of us want to be divinely cursed. So we view it as a bad thing or even an evil thing. However, nothing, 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 evil or bad comes from the hand of God. If you think that's what happens, you've got the wrong theology. Nothing evil or bad comes from God's hand. But it doesn't look good, does it? Why? Because that's just how we are. We'd like to, to, to uh, determine the score, don't we? It's just how we are. We can't get it in our finite minds that something like a curse can actually be something very good. And it can be a blessing. And then when we think like that, we, we, some, we will quickly credit this kind of stuff to you know, the enemy, to Satan. So this belongs to Satan. It's Satan's work. I'm sure people in that day of Haggai were thinking the same thing. You know, this is Satan's handiwork. That's not what we read, folks. So don't put into the text what the text does not say. It says God blew it away. And if Satan was involved, he was only doing God's bidding. Because it says God blew it away. So some will quickly credit Satan for these types of divine workings, yet in the, this instance and any other instance, one cannot do that because this is clearly a work of the Lord. See what happens when you remove the Lord from the picture? You end up with a mess. Therefore, if it is a work of the Lord delivered to his people, we must come to the conclusion that this is a blessing in disguise. We must recognize it as an act of God's sovereign grace and mercy toward them. They had shifted their hearts and their minds from the Lord. And it was evident by the fact that they were focusing on their own homes. Renovating their own homes to be more elegant than God's home. It wasn't that God didn't want them to have nice homes. It was the fact that his house was lying in ruins. And as an act of sovereign grace and mercy toward them, he blows away everything that they have trusted in to bring them satisfaction. Why? Well, if it's a work of the Lord delivered to his people, we must always remember that it is a blessing in disguise. We must recognize it as a sovereign act of God pouring out his grace and mercy toward us. Even. The greatest illustration of this is found in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. As the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Galatia, and he wrote like this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the Lord. How? Having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Did you get that? You know what Paul's saying here? He said Christ was a curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. That's what it says, doesn't, doesn't it? 
And that's what he meant. That Christ became a curse for us. You telling me Christ is a curse? You wouldn't say that to him, would you? And you wouldn't think that way, would you? Because he is no curse. Not the way we understand it in our finite minds. Because we would say a curse is a bad thing. But here, a curse is a wonderful thing. Here, Paul says that a curse is such a great blessing that we should be humbled. That we should be humbled and shouting with joy, singing hallelujah, what a Saviour. Christ a curse, Paul said here that Christ redeemed us from the curse. What curse? Sin. How did he do that? By becoming a curse for us. And yet we never consider Christ to be a curse because we view him as a sovereign, almighty God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. So that's why God is the Lord of hosts in this book because he employed all of nature to do his bidding so that his people, if they experienced this curse, would turn to him in repentance and forgiveness and get their minds and their hearts back on the job. And that was an act of grace and goodness from God, the Lord of hosts. And have we not experienced that ourselves? Have there not been times in your life when you've gone astray, as the old hymn says, that, you know, we are prone to wonder? And that God in his grace and mercy has moved heaven and earth to bring you back to the fold. Folks, as we think about the book of Haggai and as we think about our own lives and our own journey in the things of the Lord, don't forget that he is still the Lord of hosts today. For well, he is the God who never changes. He is the same yesterday, Old Testament, today and forever. And how you see him working here in the Old Testament, you can trust that he is working in the same way today. So that even if you are neglecting the house of the Lord, he will send you a blessing disguised to look like a curse. <laughs> and when it comes, you do what Paul says to do, to thank the Lord always for all things. And then repent and turn back.
Father God, we come to you today and we just want to give you thanks for your word. We thank you that you are indeed Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. And that, Lord, you are using all things to accomplish your will. You've demonstrated that to us throughout the Old Testament and particularly in the book of Exodus as you led your people into the promised land that you had promised them way back in the book of Genesis to a man called Abraham. And nothing, Lord, hindered you from achieving that glory. So we come to you today, Lord, and I don't know everyone's needs here this morning. I don't know everyone's difficulties that they are facing in life and worship. But Lord, I know you know. And I know that, Lord, if they are your people, that you will do whatever you need to do to bring them back to repentance, to turn them to you. Lord, often it's through hard times and suffering that people finally realize that you are all they need. Lord, we just pray that people might not have to suffer much. But as they read the book of Haggai, as they read your word, they will come to their senses and realize that their greatest need is for you. That without you, we are absolutely nothing. So Lord, bless us today. Thank you for your word. And keep us focused on you. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And for the joy set before him and Jesus despising the shame. We look forward to being with him as we seated at your right hand to worship and praise you for all eternity. Till then, uh, uh, we trust you.